Muddy Knees Media. For the rest of this month, this month being September 2020, you can take out a subscription to The Athletic for the frankly ridiculous price of just £1 a month. That's unrivaled football writing and analysis from the very best people in the business, a brand spanking new breaking news service and ad-free versions of each Athletic podcast, all for just £1 a month. Go to theathletic.com slash totally to get started. Totally Football Show. Today, a weekend of surprises. From West Brom, where Chelsea get a draw with baggies, like they just met a delivery guy on a scooter, to West Ham, where David Moyes is the poster boy for the new work-from-home guidelines, to East Manchester, where City meet the most offensive foxes since Lawrence. All that plus Stoke, and why football isn't handling the new rules on handling in this Totally Football Show, in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. It's Monday the 28th of September. Hurrah. Thanks for joining us here on the Totally Football Show. It's going to be a good one, I think, because on the show we have a Rory Smith of the failing New York Times. Hello, Rory. Hello, James. Daniel Story of the All-Seeing Eye and the new book Mind Games with Neville Southall, which you'll be telling us about later on. Hi, James. And Matt Davis-Adams of uh, Straight Outta Compton, Match of the Day and The Magic Circle. All right, guys. Hi, I think it, it's straight out of Cobham. I mean... But, oh, did I yeah. say Compton? Yeah. Were you not involved in that record, Matt? Oh. No. <laughs> straight out of Cobham. My mistake. Uh, so, yeah, I say magic circle. Uh, Alex Cooney says, who is this year's Matt Davis-Adams outside chance of relegation? Sheffield United stroke Burnley stroke another. What do you think? Oh, I've said before I'm out of the predictions game. Certainly, really? um for a few weeks, yeah. When 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 you've completed it, there's not much point in, in going again, I don't think. Okay. But as Rory's been pointing out, actually, this is a bad season to be essaying predictions. Uh, you were tweeting earlier, Rory, the lack of preseason, the absence of fans, the compressed schedule. If you're gonna have an unexpected season, unexpected title winner perhaps, you got all the right ingredients. Yeah, it just feels to me like the the level of chaos might be slightly higher. And it, that might be a knee-jerk thing because it's been quite a chaotic weekend. But the other thing that I really can't see happening are those kind of 95-plus points tallies that we've seen in the last in the last three years. I, just, I don't think it's going to take 95 points, 96 points, 100 points to win the title. I suspect that across Europe we'll see, you know, even if it ends up being Juve and Bayern and Real Madrid and PSG, it won't be in the same sort of scale of dominance as we've seen recently. And I do think in England and probably in, in the rest of the major five leagues as well, this this feels a bit like it might be your chance if you're a well-organised underdog. Right. Well, you've seen some shot results this weekend across Europe and in the Premier League. Have you revelled in the chaos, Daniel? Yeah, I think it, it makes for brilliant entertainment. And I know not having fans in grounds is very unideal and I think it probably affects a couple of the clubs we mentioned as potential relegation candidates, you know, Burnley and Sheffield United amongst them. But it's great armchair entertainment. Um it might not be ideal, but if it's gonna be watched from home, then it might as well be unpredictable. It might as well have lots of goals. It might as well have um the sort of interminable penalty debates that will I'm sure be covered in this show and many more because that idea of football as soap opera is kind of exactly what you want when you're watching from home. Mmm, interminable penalty debates, you say. All right, well, let's get our weekend review underway at the Etihad. 
You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. It'll be Leicester who will cement their perfect three out of three start. Madison! Oh, goodness me! That is quite something from James Madison. And that should be enough to secure a famous win at the Etihad. Well, listener, loads of shock results this weekend. We're going to begin with Leicester's 5-2 win over Man City at the Etihad. What on earth happened here? Have they been digging up dead regents again? It's the only possible explanation. I think, to be honest, if you, if you, if you look, looked at the team sheets, you probably think, well, you know, a, a defence containing Nathan Ake and Eric Garcia conceding five probably isn't that much of a shock. Eric Garcia is very promising, but he's still really raw. Uh, and Nathan Ake played for a team that, that conceded five reasonably regularly in the last few years at Bournemouth. So it's not like that's a kind of an all-conquering defence. There was a mate-do-and-mend element to City just in terms of the lineup, but the, the naivety and occasionally the thickness of the defending really did kind of stand out. City with one or two squad issues, surprisingly so, only three weeks into the season. It all began, though, in, in fine fashion with that blistering opener from Riyad Mahrez. Uh, then Leicester won a penalty which Jamie Vardy duly converted. And then out of nowhere came that magnificent, would you call it Zola-esque or Dennis Law-esque or Betteger-esque uh, Jamie Vardy uh, goal, which put them ahead. Uh, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, it was it was brilliant because we, see, we have seen those type of goals before without going into too much detail, whether, you know, the striker allows the ball to kind of rebound off his boot and go past the keeper, but they generally go along the floor. He had the presence of mind that he realised Edison had spread himself and he needed to kind of impact some force on the ball to chip it up over Edison's leg. And it was, it was absolutely brilliant. And the way that Jamie Vardy kind of celebrated as soon as he he kicked it and then kind of, if you look at his celebration, he just looked back just to check it did go in. He knew exactly what he was doing. It's completely instinctive. And so much of what Jamie Vardy does is underrated because it's it's well thought out now. You know, he doesn't just scream after players anymore. He 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 makes you know, he makes runs by design rather than because he always makes them now. Brendan Rodgers has changed that. But this was to show that he still retains that pretty remarkable instinct for a, a player who seems to be getting better. He feels like a, a you know, an English Antonio Di Natale. Mm, yeah. But for my mind, probably not the best goal in the game you know we got maybe three of the best goals of the month maybe of the season in this match but the the Mares one I mean it's such a shame that it was the first goal in a game that his team ended up getting thrashed in because otherwise it would be a lot more memorable but yeah that and the, the Madison one that followed it was was aesthetically pleasing but I think that the Mares just for the beauty of the the final angle from behind the ball just the the arrow-like trajectory of it was a real thing of joy. There's something to be said for a sort of long-range shot that's just hit really hard. Like I'm all, all for curl and swerve and dip, but sometimes just someone leathering a football is really pleasant. My favourite bit, though, was, was Gary Neville on commentary asking what you would call the Vardy goal, mm. to which the answer is a flick. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They tried to sell it as, that's now a Vardy. Yeah, if... but it, it was as though it had never happened before, but I'm pretty sure... I mean, it's a great goal, but I'm, I have seen... I've seen goals like that before. James mentioned Zola. Ibra scored one at one point, and I mm-hmm. think that was in the air, which makes the execution more difficult, meaning it's a better goal. But the idea that you needed to invent some sort of new part of the football vocabulary for that goal seemed a little bit excessive. He was excited, and it was that kind of game, a game which saw Jamie Vardy become only the second player ever to score a league hat-trick against a Pep Guardiola side, the other 
a player previously to do it being Jamie Vardy, curiously enough. It's taken the number of penalties that we've had in the Premier League this season to a whopping 20 in 26 games. Duncan Alexander, of course, has been on hand to point out that means we're on track for 304 penalties at current uh, rates of spot kick giving this season. The current record is 112. Just, uh, just extraordinary. There are lots of things to talk about here. One is the fact that Leicester, without Ndidi, weren't supposed to be much bother uh, to Guardiola's side. The other is the fact that when City go behind, they tend to stay there, uh, worryingly so for a team of their calibre. Yeah, we talked about that um, when they were eliminated from the Champions League by Lyon. And the other thing we said at that point was that they also seem to have this habit of concealing goals in clusters. You know, they did it against numerous teams last season. The Wolves ones were the best example because they did it in both games against Wolves. But um, who were a team that sat back and soaked up pressure and then looked to make the most of the sloppiness that seems to be so regular that it's it's more commonplace than not now. You know, they will have games where they swap teams aside because teams don't really lay a glove on them. But as soon as... It was almost as if that Leicester had one attack where Harvey Barnes got in behind and had loads of space and it was snuffed out by Garcia. It was almost as if Leicester kind of looked at each other and went, these aren't very good. If, if we attack them, they will crumble. And that's exactly what happened. Mm. Well, what is it with Man City's squad then? Because... Rory, you mentioned the slightly threadbare nature of it, of Pep's options at the bat. Up front, meanwhile, they were missing Sergio Aguero and Gabriel Jesus with Raheem Sterling as a sort of nominal false nine. And then Pep later on uh, throwing on 17-year-old Liam Delap, FPL banger, writing in saying, let's talk about Pep's tactics. He brings on Liam Delap, but he doesn't make him take a single throw in. Unforgivable. The, th- the thing about the injuries, the injuries are obviously a, a mitigating circumstance. And Daniel mentioned earlier that there's been a sh- this short pre-season. City have had a more interrupted break than than most teams because obviously they were involved in the Champions League until until the latter stages. They are short. There's no question. Losing both of your main strikers is is bad. The fact that Laporte's not there is bad. John Stones isn't there. That's bad. They're about to sign Ruben Diaz. In fact, by the time this goes out, they might even have signed Ruben Diaz from from Benfica to bolster their defence. But the thing isn't, and this is the sort of thing that kind of ends up with me not looking at Twitter for three days, is I don't think that's an excuse for Manchester City. In the same way, I'm not sure it's an excuse for for any of the the kind of moneyed elites, because the the privilege of having access in City States to essentially unlimited transfer spending, and it you know with Manchester United and Chelsea and and Liverpool, it's they all effectively can buy as many players as they want in the context of what they might need. Like you obviously can't go and sign 75 players, but they, they should they should have the resources they need. You can inure yourself against injury crises. And I think that to see City so threadbare, it's not Guardiola's fault, but I think you do have to question the squad planning. You have to question Chiki Badiristein and how they've built that team. You have to question their recruitment. And you have to question, I guess, to an extent, maybe that's where Pep comes in, whether he's asking for the right stuff. That is a failing of a club. Are they following the Barcelona model a little too uh, conscientiously? I'm not sure. I don't know whether I don't know what, what what Daniel and Matt think. I don't know whether it's that they've they've got a desire to see some return on on all the investment in the academy. So they've kind of created a pathway, which is an admirable thing. But if it, it I don't know if it comes around at the time that you don't really need it to come around, that can be problematic. But to see to see you know the, potentially the richest team in the world, their third choice striker is a 17 year old. That doesn't suggest that a lot of great planning, has to be said. 
Yeah, and it's it's fantastic having a, a brilliant academy, but it, it, they're they're kind of throwing these young players who you know the bench was lifted with. They're throwing them in blind because they they haven't sort of assimilated them into the team towards the back half of last season when you thought it would have been the ideal opportunity to you know once the once the league's gone. So it's not as if they've got players who they can call on who've had even ten Premier League games whereby you'd think they'd have you know even a reasonable level of experience to come into a game like this one today. Yeah, and we we should also mentioned that that Leicester played very well and and we've mentioned their injuries already but they were pretty rotten without Wilfred and Didi last season and finding out in midweek that he's going to need probably some surgery and is going to be out for a couple of months or maybe as long as that could easily have poured cold water on their plans to sit back and defend so fair play to them for having that in-game management to to react to, to City's sloppiness and absolutely take advantage of it you know scoring five goals at Manchester City however they defend is is no mean feat I think it's the first time that a Pep side has ever conceded five goals in the league and City now have a negative goal difference for the first time since 2008 crikey before Liam Delap was born more or less speaking of Liam Delap him returning and of course he he scored in the Carabao Cup against Bournemouth during the week did that make you realise how much you miss those faraway days of the man in the baseball cap and Rory Delap's long throw-ins and windy old Britannia Stadium? I quite miss Rory Delap as a namesake. I right. felt that that lent, lent a degree of... He, he did a lot for the name Rory, did Rory Delap. You can't, you can't <laughs> take that away from him. And I, to, be, to be fair, I always quite liked going to Stoke. I always quite liked the stadium. It was a, it's right off the motorway. It's good parking. The, the food was really good. And to be, to be honest, you quite often would go and see a big team brought low. It was a it was a place where there was an innate drama and there were always people sat on the hill watching who hadn't paid and I admired right. them. Sometimes they'd be on the top deck of that of a double-decker bus. Yes. Uh, affording a similar view. It, that's the thing, that, that era of Stoke is still now touted as the, kind of the acid test of your Premier League credentials, your ability to perform at that location in those kind of windy conditions. But but Stoke's not even there in the Premier League anymore. Who 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 is the Stoke now? Do we have well, to, one even? To kind of be ten to make a tenuous link about that. The other thing that City lack is, and it sounds quite might sound a kind of old school thing to say, but there really doesn't seem to be that many leaders in that team. You know, Raheem Sterling was one of the most senior players playing today. He is many things, and nearly all of them very very good. But he he's not really a, a leader in that sense. Vincent Company was oft criticised and oft criticised fairly, but he was at least a leader. Um, Fernandinho is probably that figure, but he's he's kind of quiet. He's a quiet authority, and he's also a player who, when he plays very very well, and when City are playing very well, looks very good. And when they crumble, he he kind of goes a bit quiet then. So that kind of stokishness. It, it is important for Premier League teams because you will face adversity, particularly this season when, as we said, things are going to be all over the place. You do need players to step up and say, hang on a minute, we're going to grab this game. Okay. It's funny that, that Daniel feel, feels the need to, to like caveat that with it with it feels old-fashioned. <laughs> there's a reason why people in football talk about things like leadership. And as much as if you kind of consume football exclusively through social media and XG, which is massively valuable... You, you kind of dismiss that as sort of Allardycean nonsense, but there's a reason people about in football talk about it, and that's because it really matters. And City clearly don't have enough of it, and you wonder whether that's um, low to give him any credit after he put out that awful tweet about getting COVID. But whether Ibrahimovic had a point in his autobiography when he said that, that Guardiola really liked people who sit and listen to him, so he has all, all the ideas, and whether one of the kind of Achilles heels in his in his vision of football 
is that no one else takes responsibility. Well, there you go, Lester. You had one of your biggest wins in ages, but you made the mistake of doing it against the big six side, so we talked about them instead. Uh, next up, we'll be discussing some more of the huge results on this big, big Sunday of Premier League action. The Premier League's a little different, but at Paddy Power, we're trying to look at the upside. With Paddy Power's Acker Cracker, get a free bet if one leg of your four-plus-fold Acker lets you down on all football matches and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet, £10. Min odds, one to five on each leg. Online exclusive exclude. Shop bets, T's and C's apply. 18 plus begambleaware.org. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Has to wait for the cavalry to arrive. And here's Fornals. Oh! Bowen hits the bullseye once again and West Ham are on course for their first points of the season. What else happened not on the Sunday list now? Quite a lot. Leeds, for example, met uh, Sheffield United and beat them 1-0. Patrick Bamford with his third goal in three. Uh, the Blades on their sixth straight defeat, counting matches from last season. Uh, Sunday night, meanwhile saw West Ham entertaining Wolves. Wolves, who under Nuno Espirito Santo had faced the Hammers four times previously, winning all four of those games without so much as conceding a goal. Boy, did that karma catch up with them on this occasion. This was almost the most surprising scoreline of the weekend for me, maybe even more so than, than City against Leicester, because th- this is not what Wolves do, is it? It's the first time they've conceded this many goals in the game in, in more than a year, but they just look so timid up front. And you wonder if, I don't know, there's too many new faces all, all trying to gel at the same time, whether they're just exhausted from their never-ending season from last season. But, you know, to concede four goals against West Ham, West Ham, that's not a good look. Very unlike Wolves and very unlike in a, in a good sense what we'd been seeing from West Ham till now, Daniel. What, what was the difference with that? And people will point to the fact that David Moyes wasn't there, but surely that can't have been it. <laughs> I think and this this is a, a very sweeping generalisation, but you look at West Ham's bench tonight and it had Andre Yarmolenko, Felipe Anderson, Manuel Lanzini, Sebastian Haller, four players who... They paid an awful lot of money for and had very big ideas of. And they've been underperforming for a long time. And I I think if West Ham could get good money for some of those, they'd probably consider selling them. Um, The side that started a year and a half ago, you would say would be of lesser quality than those players. You know, Antonio playing as a forward, Suchek, Jared Bowen. They would have been understudies 18 months ago. But the reality is, I think it shows that having a team that, is prepared to point in the right direction and or pull in and it kind of plays in a little bit to what we've just said about leadership makes a huge difference you know if you were a a Premier League centre-back now Mikel Antonio is one of the strikers who you would least want to face that's not because he's the most talented or the best finisher it's because he doesn't give you any rest and I think that matters to West Ham fans at the moment because the whole issue is that they don't believe that everyone is pulling in the same direction. They don't believe enough players care, particularly the ones who seem to play every week without playing very well. So I think it's probably a statement in that regard. And we should say fair play to David Moyes for that because he picked the team and he was making the changes and doing the tactics. He wasn't just kind of sat at home watching. Um, Everything was going through the assistant, but he was making, you know, he was calling the shots. And it is a result that ties in with the good uh, results that they were having at the tail end of last season, which isn't that long ago. So maybe the the talk of doom and gloom was was overstated. Was that was that influenced? You think overly by the, the the kind of 
Mark Noble tweets, etc.? I think they, they, were, they were playing relatively well, even before lockdown. I think the, the first lockdown, not the second lockdown. They, you know, there were signs of life in them. And then obviously that all kind of gets stopped because we have the, the three month break. But they were OK towards the end of towards the end of last season. And to be honest, they were pretty good against Arsenal in, was that midweek? That may have been midweek. Whenever they played Arsenal, they were quite good against Arsenal. Mm. And you, you do wonder with, with, with quite a lot of teams in, the, in that sort of homogenous mass beneath by eighth in the Premier League, whether all it takes is one team to be OK and the other team to be just a little bit off it or not quite, not quite themselves. And you can get these vast discrepancies. In results, so I agree with Matt. It, that was the result that I think, if you look at it, that's the one that would really catch your eye because it's West Ham winning four 0 But at the same time, maybe it's not that you know Wolves have an off day, which is fair enough. They're allowed an off day. Maybe West Ham aren't quite as bad as we've all assumed they are. I think the other the other interesting thing, and looking back through the results just now, um, West Ham Wolves is clearly the best example of it. So maybe it's just an easy thing to say, but I wonder if given that teams are going to have less energy this season, we think, I wonder if we'll see teams that fall 2-0 down go on to concede third and fourths and fifths because there's a reason to save your energy if you think the game's lost. We see that from teams in cup competitions quite a lot where they think, well, there's almost nothing to be gained from chasing this and wasting more energy. That matters this season if you're going to play every four or five days right and through. So I, that uh, it's only a hypothesis at the moment because there's probably not enough evidence for it. But I think with Wolves, you just saw them go... It was almost as if they thought, well, this is lost now. And West mm. Ham thought, well, we've got a chance to really seize some initiative here. All the more reason for us to applaud brave Frank Lampard's brave Chelsea as they roared back from 3-0 down on Saturday. We'll come to that game very shortly, Matt. I know you're eager. But before that, let's finish off our Sunday roundup with the huge late plot twist in North London as what had looked like a mild pedestrian 1-0 win for Spurs over the meek magpies, suddenly in the final minutes ripped off its mask to reveal a raging handball controversy. Spurs won, Newcastle won, is what the uh, history books will record. But it was all the VAR handball horror, uh, wasn't it, Daniel? Do you want to try and uh, describe how this unfolded for everyone? Yeah, so a free kick is given wrongly as it happens, although I guess that's immaterial. Just to presage that even, Newcastle, had they done anything for the entire game at all? They'd done some things, but they'd not done any of them well. Um, right. Apart from Carl Dahler was an honourable exception. And, and right. actually, Joe Linton as well, who who tried okay. to at least run at his man. But, yeah, so, so they hadn't had any shots on target. And Spurs, who were cruising along to a nice three points, suddenly uh, find themselves called back for a penalty. Yes. Um, so Andy Carroll goes up for headers in the boxes, as Andy Carroll is wont to do. Um, Eric Dyer jumps... I think probably actually gets pushed a little bit as he jumps, but will file that under general contact in the penalty area. Um, but jumps with his back to Carroll and his arm, it was outstretched. I mean, it's very hard to jump any other way without looking pretty foolish. But he, yeah, his back's to Carroll and the ball does strike him on the arm. And we should say, because referees get enough criticism, that the rules dictate that that was a penalty. And that's why the penalty was given. Um, it's the rule or the law that is the ass here, not the referee. And um, I actually really feel for referees because they are always the front line of that criticism. It was it was nice to see, you know, hear managers on Saturday and Sunday actually call out the rule makers for it. But I think if you're a referee in the Premier League, you probably still feel that you're the face of that flack 
rather than those decision makers. There have been a lot of controversial decisions already this season, but this felt like another level. And it ties in, as you were mentioning a second ago, uh, with the uh, similar spot kick decision at Selhurst Park in the game between Crystal Palace and Everton. There, a Luca Dean ball, which uh, he headed down onto, um, I think it was uh, Ward's arm, yes. uh, saw Everton handed a penalty when uh, Palace were at the time... Mm. Uh, level with them but there was there just felt like there was no way that Newcastle could get anything from this game without it being awarded to them on this kind of very arbitrary decision here it's quite interesting the the kind of unanimity of, of reactions against it even the Newcastle manager calling it a nonsense decision and saying that managers should get together to tell the Premier League this must stop uh, I'm not not sure how realistic the prospect of any changes being made but it feels we're approaching a handball crisis point. Yeah, I mean, very, very quickly. My big issue with it, and I actually disagree with the Joel Ward one far more than the Eric Dyer one, I have to say. Oh, really? But yeah, because to me, the the issue is the use of the word unnatural in the, in the laws of where the arm position is. Now, unnatural for defending, you know, a header coming into a box is a very different thing from unnatural in any other walk of life and also most other incidents on a football pitch I think you know if you have your there's an argument to say as a footballer that if you have to have your arms behind your back when defending a cross or stuck to your side that to me is more unnatural than having them just kind of three or four inches away from your body and that that creates such a horrible sense and without going into too much detail about it football values its scores much more than any other sport so these decisions matter more than any other sport because you generally only get not this season but two between two and three goals a game which makes decisions like this that cause game-changing incidents so important to get the terminology of those laws correct well we've already mentioned the number of penalties um, and the huge increase in the amount of penalties awarded this season the handball rule has got a lot to do with that. There were changes made over the summer after problems uh, last year with the number of goals being disallowed because of handballs in, in the build-up, and that's been tweaked. But um, I, I was involved in a call with Pogmol in which they explained that uh, from now on there was licence for referees to make allowances for a lack of intent and above all, ricochets. And I've seen a lot of suggestions that referees have to give these penalties, but I'm not sure. They seem to be, there seems to be a harder line being taken in, in this country. Does that mean that it's more likely, therefore, that there will be some, some change then? If, if they have got the ability to, to interpret it slightly differently, uh, that maybe you know, the pressure will come down after this weekend and, and Mike Riley or whoever will say, OK, we've gone too far the other way with it. It, it just seems like ambiguity is something that, that referees and lawmakers don't like, which is why uh, the idea of a deliberate handball doesn't seem to be enough you know, as the reasoning for, for giving a penalty for handball because what is deliberate and, and what is not. But the mess that we've got ourselves into with this doesn't, doesn't feel like the answer. Well, they're trying to, to kind of retrofit the laws to, to suit the, the micro-refereeing of those incidents, aren't they? And the, well, I think what, what we're slowly coming to realise is that the laws are, have always been far too vague and now that we have technology to show us what's happening, we think, well, actually, that, that law doesn't quite work. But... It feels really kind of wise after the event and a little bit kind of hindsighting. And I don't want to sound like a smart ass, but you do wonder whether maybe looking back in like 10 years' time when we're through the like 15th iteration of the, of the handball law and we're all completely lost. I find it really hard this now to have strong opinions on it because I'm still not quite sure the Chelsea's third goal 
to me from last season as a handball against Kai Havertz shouldn't have been given. And I, I don't really understand why they can why, why they can now say, well, actually, we were wrong to do that because it's not in the direct build-up, but it was a second before it. And you think, well, maybe it would have been all right if we'd just not kicked up such a fuss for so long about well, referees I, I, not being perfect. I, I don't want to equally be the guy who bangs on about VAR, but I think you're absolutely right when you say that before VAR existed... Uh, these kind of infractions would have been there, but the referees didn't see either of these uh, handballs, in inverted commas, so the game would have just proceeded and we would have had a, a better match, in my opinion, as a result. It's VAR which lifts the rock and shows you all sorts of things. But it's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of kind of what people want from the rules of this game. And, mm. and you get that thing where people always say, oh, it's not the rules, it's the laws of the game. And you think, yeah, they are called the laws of the game, but, but this is just a game. It's not like the laws of society. So it's okay if we change these rules because they're not working for us anymore. And the key thing about the rules is that we all, as a kind of football culture, buy into them. It's, it is, it, without sounding like a kind of an advert for a television channel, it's our game. And if, if we don't have that sense of like natural justice, where what we're watching on TV in this case or in the stadium at some point in the future feels fair to us, if, if it feels like it's wrong, then we, ha- we have to change it because it, it it's not, kind of set in stone. It, if it feels like it's not natural justice, then it, it's pointless playing a game with a load of rules that everyone disagrees with. And I think that's the stage where we're, that we're reaching with handball, particularly, and offside, where the rules have kind of taken almost a life of their own, detached from their original meaning. Roy Hodgson predicting a dystopian future where players will start flicking the ball onto a hand and screaming, hand ball. I, I fear we're not, we're not far away if we haven't already arrived there. Well, we reached that in 2014 when Luis Suarez spent an entire three months kicking the ball at defenders' hands and winning penalties. So, I mean, it is the Suarez future we're entering. And famously, it should be said, with Suarez appealing for handball when the goalkeeper handballed it once, which was (laughs) absolutely superb. Uh, He didn't have any other run-ins with handball, did he, Suarez? No. Uh, Okay. Well, beyond all of that handball business, listen, let's hope that the powers that be... Uh, sort that out. Uh, Mora, Lucas Mora got his first goal of the season. Kane got his fifth assist. And Deli Ali was left out of the squad by Jose Mourinho. And Newcastle, who Daniel Story described as a joy vacuum. Good luck to your mentions. Right. Uh, they are they are the one club that you are allowed to say that about, actually. Okay. Um, so but they have safe this, ground there. They have this remarkable stat that no opposition keeper has yet saved a Newcastle shot in the Premier League this season. Hmm. Yeah, the good news is they scored every one of their shots on target. The bad news is they've had three shots on target. Um, it depends probably on your life philosophy, whether you see that as a good or bad thing. So you're criticising Newcastle for that, but praising Patrick Bamford for it. That seems, <laughs> seems like a double standard. <laughs> Alumni of my former school, you see. So it's... <laughs> Who's the most famous person who went to your school, Rory? Uh, Ricky Wilson from the Kaiser Chiefs. Really? Nice. Okay. Matt, who have you got? Nick Miller. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> Daniel Taylor. That's one. Um, yeah, yeah. Daniel and Taylor, cracking. Yeah. What did they put in the ink pots in that place? <laughs> Cliches. Yes, quite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the the former guitarist for the band Editors. Yeah. Oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The alumni. Yeah, yeah. Crikey! I had mm. Eddie Tempole Tudor, but that won't mean anything to you people. <laughs> uh, hey. Let's get on to Saturday, because good as Sunday was, Saturday, arguably, was even more special. It's all part of the Mike Ashley legend. Joe Kinnear getting appointed for a second time is just 
is probably up there among the most baffling. Today we'll print the absolute truth. You think we're we can fuck off and we're slimy, is that fair enough? Yeah. I think that was about as good as it got. The away game where he necked a pint in about five seconds. You're born a magpie, you're born to support Newcastle United. It's something that's kind of given me sleepless nights. Until he goes, the club can't get any better and it never will get any better. That's me done. That has me done. Welcome to Beyond the Headline, a brand new podcast series from The Athletic that goes even deeper on the stories that matter to you. Our first series asks, what's next for Newcastle United as the dust settles on the takeover that never was? Over the course of three half-hour episodes, we speak to the journalists and the supporters closest to the story. Subscribe now or listen ad-free on The Athletic app by searching for Beyond the Headline. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Matt, the Hawthorns, Saturday afternoon, winless West Brom, racing to a 3-0 half-time lead, then Chelsea staging a monumental second-half comeback, but still left with big questions. Uh, Nick Miller's got one. He says, surely there's something in the code against going 3-0 down against West Brom in 25 minutes. <laughs> Very good. Uh, what I really enjoyed about this game was the end of it and seeing Callum Robinson, who'd scored two goals, look absolutely heartbroken. And Tammy Abraham, who'd scored a 93rd minute equaliser, looking absolutely furious and just nobody being happy about the six goal thriller that the rest of us had enjoyed so much. Right. OK. So how did it all happen? Well, I mean, Chelsea probably should have been 2-0 up. Tammy Abraham missed a great chance. Timo Werner hit the bar. And then Marcus Alonso uh, made a dreadful mistake. A poor header, albeit there was a lot of play that unfolded after that before Robinson made it 1-0. Um, Thiago Silva slipped on the ball. You know, that can happen. But I think the, the goal that will particularly concern the Chelsea coaching staff was the third one. Uh, Kyle Bartley, not exactly a prolific goal scorer, but, but left completely unmarked inside the six-yard box to uh, to turn in and just exactly the kind of goal that, that Chelsea conceded ad nauseum last season. Right, that was the third goal, yeah. And the, and the second goal, mm. how worried will they be by the second goal? Well, I mean, Thiago Silva fell over. It happens. You know, I don't. I don't think that's a, a massive concern. You know, I saw people saying, "Oh, what disastrous debut for for Thiago Silva." I'm not sure that was that, it not. That's it. Well, I'm not sure that's ever really an appropriate word to use in in the context of a football match anyway. But, um, I mean, they didn't lose the game. It it wasn't brilliant, but I'm not sure that it will go down as the the worst night of his career. Is it appropriate to use the word disastrous for their kit? (laughs) You see, the kit... It doesn't look great by any means, but the problem with it is that it just looks like an old Crystal Palace kit. It's not that it's a particularly offensive design. It just looks like it belongs to another club, which is odd. I think there is a there is a, a kind of lingering question that now it well, inevitably grows each week, despite the kind of irony that they've signed so many attacking players and not so many defensive players. But it's this almost kind of this wide-eyed optimism of Lampard's Chelsea in that they played with four attackers. They told Rhys James and Marcus Alonso to get forward and Marcus Alonso certainly doesn't need any invitation to do that, um, which meant when they lost possession they kind of had this sort of 226 formation and then everyone looked a bit surprised that West Brom were breaking and had four on two situations it's you can do that but 
and Liverpool to an extent do that, albeit with one less attacker. But it relies upon two things for me. First, it relies upon you pressing to get the ball back rather than having this huge gap between defence and midfield and attack. And Liverpool obviously plays high line. But also it kind of relies on really fast centre-backs that are good at positioning, like Virgil van Dijk, that snuffs out danger. And Thiago Silva and Andreas Christensen, if they are anything, it's that they are not fast players. And I just felt a bit, particularly for Christensen, because he was kind of having to stop everything by himself and kind of having to guess where the ball was going to go to to block a move. And West Brom are not brilliant, but they're good enough to pass around one player. It's just, it just seems really, really naive. And Lampard knows as much as anyone that the kind of margin for error for him now have, has reduced because they spent so much money. I was at Dudison, Dudison Park last week when West Brom lost 5-2 there. Strange as it sounds, in a 5-2 defeat. West, West Brom are quite good, particularly, I mean, they, they can't really defend, as we saw in the second half, but they're pretty good going forward. The, the, that combination, Robinson, Diangana, Matias Pereira, they're, they're, they're neat, clever, technical players, and they will score goals against teams. So I, I, I wasn't surprised that West Brom gave Chelsea a bit, of a, a bit of a run for their money in terms of exposing the holes in their defence. The fact that West Brom can't defend is going to be a problem going forward in the season. The thing about... Lampard and defenders, though, they've signed Chilwell, obviously not playing yet. They've signed Thiago Silva, they've signed a goalkeeper. I suspect they'll sign Declan Rice in the next week. They are just signing a lot of players. And I think it got, got a bit lost in um, in the sort of false furore about Klopp saying that thing about oligarchs and countries. But I think what he was getting at was that Chelsea have to, have to bed all those players in in a season where you have no time to train. And that's going to be really hard. I think they have strength in their defence. It's just that they... It takes time to find that cohesion. And Chelsea don't have to have a lot of missteps along the way because they're not going to get to do that over pre-season or in training. Right. Since the start of last season, stat here, uh, Chelsea have conceded more away Premier League goals than any other team. This is a, a team that has N'Golo Kante in their ranks. So there seems to be a feeling among some of their supporters that you can buy all the defensive players in the world, but unless the manager knows what to do with them, it's not going to make any difference uh, how much of this is frank's fault well he is an he is a rookie novice manager by elite big six club standards albeit at a time when you know Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is also one of those but he quickly needs to learn if he hasn't already that the answer if if a team is sitting deep and frustrating you is not just to keep throwing one more player forward and then another player forward and then another player forward the answer is to as Rory says, is to have the cohesion between attacking players that you move the ball quickly and players move themselves quickly, that you create space without needing those extra players. And Rory's absolutely right. It's going to take not just in defence the cohesion, but they've got three new attacking players and we haven't even seen Hakim Ziyech yet. And Christian Pulisic has not been there that long and he's still to come back. So it's going to be incredibly difficult to to do that. And, you know, I, I'm not saying I fear for them because it's very early season, but and I don't know what what Chelsea's hierarchy's realistic ambition is for this season. If, if Chelsea finish fifth, does Lampard get sacked? I don't know. But it, it's not outside the realms that that happens because it is going to take time and you don't get that much anymore, especially not if you are a rookie manager making those same mistakes. He does deserve credit, uh, I imagine, Matt, for being the architect of uh, the second half comeback with the changes, the introduction of uh, Azpilicueta, etc. Equally, uh, having watched the game and commentated on it, West Brom... Do you think they're going to be all right this season? 
Um, I think they're likely to get relegated in, in all honesty. Um, Callum Robinson has a good record against Chelsea, but I'm not sure that, that he's somebody who can be relied upon to weigh in with the um, the number of goals that, that they're going to need. It depends who they sign in the next week or so. But but as we've spoken about in the last few weeks, or, or Daniel has in particular, uh, maybe they're happy to, to bank the money and not break the bank in, in trying to get a load of players in. Uh, this season to try and keep them up and end up going down anyway. Um, Matthews Pereira looked a really good play. He had an excellent season in the Championship last season and that flick he did in the second half was um, absolutely sublime. But you just wonder, in terms of over the course of the season, they've already conceded 11 goals in the Premier League this season. More than Man City. Mm. Yeah, quite. I'm not sure that, that Sam Johnson's quite up to the job of, of you know, being the keeper that's going to keep them in the Premier League. So I think it will it will be difficult for them. But as far as Chelsea go, I think Frank Lampard could really, it's a ridiculously obvious thing to say, but winning the FA Cup would have bought him an incredible amount of breathing space. Um, and, and actually, I think Tuesday's game at Spurs... Bear in mind, at Spurs is the only place that his team have, have kept a clean sheet in a Premier League game uh, that isn't Stamford Bridge. That becomes a really big one because, as we know, the Carabao Cup is rattling through the rounds already and it's concluded in February. And and maybe if Chelsea did finish fifth but they won a domestic cup, that would be enough to, to persuade the higher-ups that he's worth keeping for another season. But I think in time, he may really come to, to rue that pretty insipid FA Cup final performance and, and not winning that trophy, which looked there for them. All right, well, that's coming up on Tuesday. Uh, also on Saturday, Saints got a 1-0 win at Bare Bones Burnley. Uh, Ings with uh, his 25th goal since the start of last season. Remarkable stuff. Sean Dyche not using any subs, partly because he didn't have any. I mean, kind of, a bit. But also because I think there was a message being made there. And also on Saturday, you'll forgive me for skipping on, uh, there was a pretty remarkable match at the Amex down at the South Coast. This actually kicked off the weekend in style. You talked about West Brom players being heartbroken at the end of their game. How did Brighton feel when, having scored twice and hit the woodwork a record five times in their clash with Man United? Never been done by any team hitting the woodwork five times since Opta started recording these things. And even indeed finishing the game with a 2-2 draw, they still found themselves on the wrong end of a 3-2 defeat. I think they should take heart from that. I think, you know, a victory, a home victory against Manchester United in front of an empty stadium is one thing. I think setting a Premier League record for how, how many times you've hit the woodwork, that'll last much longer. That's that's good for... I'm not sure I've ever seen a less warranted victory. I, re, I really... I mean, I thought Brighton were fantastic. United were poor, but Brighton were absolutely brilliant. And, yeah, it... it even I mean I have no affiliation to Brighton whatsoever, but I I was gutted for them that they didn't they didn't at least get a point out of that game because that was a, it was a genuinely encouraging they were good against Chelsea on the first week of the season so they, they then smashed Newcastle and I thought I mean they they played Manchester United's strongest eleven just about off the park and that, that there there are real signs of encouragement for Brighton there the fact that they lost. As, as, as stupid as it sounds, is probably if you're Graham Potter, you're probably trying to persuade your players it doesn't really matter because the standard of the performance was so high. If they play like that against teams that aren't as good as Manchester United, aren't as clinical as Manchester United, they will win a lot of games this season. Right. They've outperformed their opponents 
in terms of XG in all three of their matches so far, but the only one they've won, of course, was uh, the previous weekend away at Newcastle. 17-6 to in Brighton's favour was the shot count here, moving Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, to admit we got away with one there post-game. Bruno Fernandes was not here for your hand-wringing, though. He says maybe Brighton say they did better. The point is to score goals, not to hit the post or crossbar. It's true. Those are misses. Yes, I, what, what, as counterintuitively as, as Brighton being very happy with the defeat, I think Manchester United should be a little bit worried about their attack, which seems an odd thing to say after they scored three goals. But you say six shots, they didn't really look to create much from open play at all. It's really interesting how, to my mind, buying Jaden Sancho is one thing, but buying some better defenders would be a would be another, or coaching the defenders he has better still. But Paul Pogba seems to be hamstrung by this inability of Manchester United to defend properly because he, he basically having to play next to Nemanja Matic on on Saturday. You know, I look I look back in 2018-19, which was his good season at Manchester United. He created 16 more chances than any other player. He hasn't created one yet this season. You know, I know we've only had three games and he got and they've only played twice and he got taken off quite early on Saturday. But he just seems to be they seem to be using him as a jobbing midfielder rather than someone that can really change the game. And he doesn't actually look very good at doing that role, I don't think. He he seems to get pressed quite easily and want to take one too many touches and end up losing the ball quite often. And I just think it's a real shame because they really wanted to keep him. But if they were only going to use him for this, they would almost have been better off selling him and reinvesting the money. But is, the Sancho, is the Sancho pursuit not kind of indicative of, of what's wrong with United? He's a brilliant player, Sancho. He'll make them much better going forward. But the problem, the problems are not that Manchester United are not do not have good wide players because I mean, right, Martial's a little bit kind of in and out. But you've got Rashford, Martial, Greenwood. You've got Danny Van der Beek who can who can slot in if you change the system. You've got Bruno. You've got Pod. There's loads of creativity there. Adding Sancho is is spending ninety million quid to to strengthen the area that you're already strong and ignore the massive kind of problem. That's that's holding you back, and I, I don't really understand why. I know that you you can kind of make an easy joke about Ed, Ed Woodward and I don't know sponsors and noodle partners and stuff, and it would it would all kind of be very pat and very kind of on brand. But surely Ed Woodward understands enough about football that they are not good at that end of the pitch, and that's where they have to strengthen. But equally, they've spent a load of money on central defenders, and it's not worked. But I feel like Ed Woodward and and, and Noodle Ed partners. would work more like, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, Ed Ed Woodward and 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 Noodle partners and this kind of thing is is a bit of a shield for Solskjaer because you don't hear anywhere near as much criticism of his inability to coach a defence as as you do Frank Lampard's, and I find that slightly surprising, seeing as they often look as as ropey as Chelsea's. The uh, business of the game-winning penalty being awarded after the final whistle, that's quite unusual. Yeah, and it, again, it's its the rules. Um, it can happen if they were still checked. I think ideally you would get into the referee's ear early enough to say, we're still checking this, so please don't blow over full-time whistle just yet because it's going to look a bit odd. Um, but it is in the rules, you know, it happened in, in the Bundesliga where I think the players had even left the pitch and then had to come back on the pitch and, and have a, a penalty. So it, it can happen. Um, it's one of those things that if it stays, we're going to have to get used to because now, you know, it sounds a very twee thing to say, but if you score a goal, you're not sure if it's been scored. If you give away a penalty, you're not sure if it's a penalty. And if you hear the full-time whistle, you're not sure if that's the end of the game. That's That's the reality. Well, better luck next time to Brighton then. They face Everton next weekend, whilst 
Spurs will be the visitors for Man United. That'll be an interesting one. You know, old friends. All that. Everton, meanwhile, continued their winning start to the season a little bit later on on Saturday. Uh, victorious at Selhurst Park. We mentioned the penalty issue here. Uh, this, though, the first time that Everton have won their first five fixtures of a season, including the Carabao Cup here, yeah, since 1938. Dominic Calvert-Lewin has now got five goals in three games. And everyone's man crush, Hamas Rodriguez, is looking very smooth indeed, eh, Rory? Yeah, he just he he is an entertaining player to watch. He just he he doesn't he's not like Messi in that in that sense that as soon as he gets the ball, you think right something's about to happen. He quite often gets the ball and nothing happens, and he has massive spells during games where he doesn't get the ball at all, and he's just sort of wandering about. But occasionally he will do something that just has so much class to it that it's impossible not to enjoy it. And the, there's the artistry. I spoke to Ancelotti about him last week, and he said, oh, it's he has that hallmark of great players that he does everything really sim- simply. He when he's got space, he plays, and when he doesn't have space, he doesn't play. And, and as far as Ancelotti's concerned, that's what you have to do. That is the point of football. But the the kind of the craft that Rodriguez does everything with, the way that he flourishes his foot as he plays a pass, the way that he kind of arcs his leg and shapes his body, is just so artistic. It's impossible not to enjoy it just on a purely aesthetic level. And I think crucially, he's someone that Everton can believe in. They they kind of look at the other players will look at him and think, well. That's Hamas Rodriguez. We've got a chance here. And the fans, although it's obviously kind of a, a kind of intangible thing at the moment, the fans are the same. I think there's a sense of fun around Everton that's not that's not been there for a while. And that that is important. True, but what if they got Troy Deeney, like uh, Richard Keyes suggested? Did you talk to him for your piece? There's a really good video. <laughs> a really good video last week after they'd beaten West Brom of some clearly fairly inebriated Everton supporters spotting Rodriguez driving out of Goodison and they had a full bottle of rosé wine and they just kind of banged on the window and gave him this bottle of wine as if they were giving away their life savings. And it made me think, I, I can't imagine anyone doing that to Davy Klassen or Sandro Ramirez. And Rory's right, he is one of those players that even when you see him out and about in Liverpool, you go, that's the player I believe in. That's the one I think can take my club onto a new level. And... And he's there because of Ancelotti. So if nothing else, if Ancelotti brings nothing else in terms of tactics, which he absolutely will, the fact that he enables them to get coups like that makes a real difference. The thing is, Everton aren't in Europe this year. They've got reasonable depth. I think my guess would be they'll, they'll sell a couple in the next week just to try, kind of keep the wage bill a little bit more controlled. As I think they're, they're pretty much at the limit in terms of how much they should be spending on their wages compared to the revenue. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple go in the next few days. But you kind of think, well, they've got they've got enough quality in the side. They could challenge for top four if they get a, if they if they get lucky with injuries, they don't have, you know, a big injury crisis. If they can take a couple of decent scalps, win a couple of big games, they they should be kind of in the in the midst of top four until until the spring at least, really. Hmm. Having boosted Brighton's morale uh, with some comforting words about positives to take, have you anything you could say about Palace here? Oh, they started, they've started the season pretty well. Um, they are a team that will lose games because I don't believe... I think their squad is probably one of the fifth or sixth weakest in the division. That's the reality of it. And they've got a fairly canny manager who's been several thousand times around the block. So he will play with two or three or even four defensive midfielders if he can. But, you know, they will be fine. Um, and it's not particularly appetising or, or inspiring, but fine's 
probably about right for Palace at the moment because it's looked a lot worse than that in recent seasons. I really enjoyed um, Andros Townsend's assist in this game. It was echoes of the Mares goal, a corner that he just swung over and the ball didn't deviate from its trajectory at all right onto um, Kiyate, who who turned in. And, and he's actually second on Palace's all-time list for assists behind Zaha, which I thought was was quite interesting. And, and particularly in a week where Roy Hodgson's kind of criticised him for, for embarking on a, a radio career at this stage of his of his time as a player. And, and you think this is one of your most productive players. Maybe just let him keep doing what he's doing. There's there's a lot to unpack there, um, Matt. Mm-hmm. What's the radio career for a start? Uh, he's on TalkSport every so often. Oh, on, is he? On the breakfast okay. show for, for, yeah, for an hour presenter, every morning. Yeah. And Roy's not happy with that? No, he, he thinks it could be a distraction, but I quite like listening to, to um, Andros Townsend speak. He's, he's quite an intelligent and interesting chap. Hodson's almost certainly taking that into account, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Palace are at Chelsea next weekend. Everton have got West Ham in the Carabao Cup and then Brighton at Goodison Park next Saturday. Now, still to come today, we're going to be ooh, having a look at one or two of your questions and also hearing about a huge weekend in La Liga ahead of Tuesday's European edition of the Totally Football Show. Uh, Alvaro Romeo will be explaining all about how uh, Barcelona got on in their first game under Ronald Koeman and also how Luis Suarez fared for his new side. All of that very shortly. First, though, here's some odds from our friend Lee Price. Dear Diary, I want to confide in you because I don't believe I can express this out loud, let alone social media. But whisper it, VAR is killing football. Controversial hot take, I know, and by killing, I mean wreaking havoc of the hashtag narrative. Hey, maybe Stens should hire VAR. Anyway, my darling journal, the football juggernaut grinds on and the world needs to hear numbers about it, from XG to PP. So let's do it. Fulham take on Villa in the What Division Is This Again derby, I have had an eye injury recently, so I could be seeing things. But it appears that Paddy Power make Fulham favourites for this. They're 7-4. Villa are a pretty similar price in fairness at 8-5. And 9-4 for the draw completes a list of confusing numbers, which ultimately tells me there's no overwhelming favourite here. The same is not true of Liverpool Arsenal. But I am at least afforded a weak segue for some more odd odds. Liverpool are priced at 40-85 to to win this one. No. Me neither. At first, I thought it could have been some sort of reference to a famous season, but the 1940 campaign was abandoned, like many non-Liverpool fans secretly hoped last year would be. Arsenal are good again, and that's only slightly sarcastic. Strange times indeed. But Arteta's men are still pretty lengthy to win this one at 11-2, and the draw isn't much better at 7-2. Have a good one. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Tim Pritchard, following your riveting conversation about poor dugout views. That wasn't you guys. That was a previous edition of the show. Don't worry. Uh, But Tim wants to know, are there any grounds with a much better view for the home manager than the visitors? Well, that was famously thought to be the case uh, at the world-famous city grounds back in 1999 when Ron Atkinson sat in the Arsenal dugout rather than the Forest dugout in his first game as Forest manager because he thought, uh, he said that, that, that back in the day, Brian Clough insisted that the away team have the, the poorest view from the respective dugouts. And so that was where Ron had mistakenly headed until Nelson Vivas tapped him on the shoulder and said, you're not our manager. 
Um, in what way was it a worse view? It's a bit further down, so it's not on the halfway line. Right. It's, I mean, there's, there's not much in it, to be honest. It was just a, an act of buffoonery. I have a memory of going to Elland Road as a kid, and this might be wrong, and being surprised that one of the dugouts, I would guess the away dugout, was, was quite a long way down the, like down the pitch and wasn't central. And it felt to me like maybe they'd shifted it a little bit further along the line than is necessary. And I also think there's something about the dugouts at Anfield that the away dugout at Anfield used to be, before they redid it, used to be kind of a, a worse post than the home dugout. I suspect that that would be true at most rounds, wherever they've been able to do something canny to try and make the, the away dugout unpleasant. There you go, Tim. Meanwhile, every time a bell rings, I hate you some more, says... As you have two Forest fans on the panel, do they think three wins in 19 is unacceptable? Personally, I'm torn. This is Nottingham Forest chat, everyone. I love uh, Lamushi, and it would be very sad to see him go. But with some very decent managers out of work, is it time for change before they get jobs in the Premier League? I mean, the change is, is probably will come, but change is arguably the last thing Forest needs. Uh, only Forest could put all their eggs in a manager's basket by allowing him to sign umpteen players that he reportedly targeted himself and then be prepared to sack him three weeks into a season but that is almost certainly what will happen yes yeah it's, I mean it depends who the replacement would be if it was Eddie Howe that would leave me in a rather invidious position um, but I don't know yeah Forrest have got one way of playing under Sabri Lamushi and they can buy as many players as they want but if they don't find a way to to come up with an effective plan B then they're going to lose more matches than they win You'll be talking about that kind of thing in the Totally Football League show, Matt, which is out on Monday, out probably right now, in fact, listener. Uh, what else is going to be in there? I hear you've got a good story about Oxford. Yeah, it's it's kind of a really funny story, but but also kind of not. Oxford um, doing all they can to stick within the COVID protocols, which according to their manager, Carl Robinson, is not the case uh, universally across League One where, where they play. Uh, so they're away at Accrington Stanley, on Saturday and they've got a very very jazzy team bus particularly by League One standards and it's so 2020 that it's rigged up with a feature that sprays a mist when people board on the coach of like an alcoholic sanitizer unfortunately this had the effect of activating a breathalyzer which is on the coach uh, which if this is uh, activated stops the coach from being driven for a period of six hours <laughs> so they're half an hour away from um, Accrington Stanley's ground at, at this point the coach is done for six hours so between some cars that the staff had and some taxis they managed to drive to the ground and up winning 4-1 wow but that played havoc with that uh, you know covid social distancing mm, jumping into people's yeah. cars and stuff mm. and 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 this weekend we've seen two games in the efl be called off because of um, positive coronavirus tests amongst players we knew about late in orient obviously their mm. their cup game against spurs getting postponed but grimsby against cheltenham also uh, also called off for the same reason right has that not been now put down as a buy for spurs i be- believe yes it so. has yeah 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 uh, all right then. Well, uh, that and uh, hopefully some cheerier stories as well coming up in the Totally Football League show, which should be out right now. A little bit later on in the week, there'll be the Offside Rule WSL edition, uh, which will feature the Women's FA Cup quarterfinals, which took place this weekend. These are, of course, last season's quarterfinals, not to be confused with this year's FA Cup, which is uh, also going to be coming up very shortly. And on Tuesday... 
a couple of shows for you. There's the Tony Scottish Football Show. They're going to be looking ahead to the big Rangers Galatasaray clash in the last qualifying round of the Europa League on Thursday. Woof. And uh, we'll be doing lots of Europa League chat in the Continental Edition of the Totally Football Show uh, with uh, Rafa and James and Jules and Alvaro Romeo. Speaking of whom, I believe we're joined now on the line by Signor Romeo. Alvaro, thank you so much for joining us. Got a lot of questions ahead of Tuesday's show. So I just wanted to get a quick heads up on, first of all, how did Barcelona get on in their big debut under Ronald Koeman? Well, I believe it was a very promising start after a summer in which uh, there were so many bad news. But if uh, good news were going to come from anywhere, it was going to be from the team, not from the club. And uh, I think that uh, Ronald Koeman uh, played, uh, or Barcelona played under him pretty well today. Of course, Villarreal in the midfield, they were a disaster under Unai Emery. And we all know that Unai Emery at Barcelona doesn't get any lucky. Barcelona played uh, with a 4 2 3 1, which is some sort of uh, a rarity uh, because it uh, hasn't happened for a long time that Barcelona has changed the system. And uh, Ansu Fati was uh, the guy who exploded the game on his own, scoring a couple of goals and uh, being uh, that player that we all expect him to be. I think that there is not enough hype about this guy because simply Barcelona was producing bad news consistently for about a year. But uh, Ansu Fati was excellent. Uh, then uh, there were no new faces in Barcelona, apart from the, the comeback of uh, Philippe Coutinho, who was on loan at Bayern. But I believe that Coutinho, and Antoine Griezmann and uh, Frenkie de Jong, the three of them were uh, starting today, uh, they have a fresh start as well. They start from scratch again. They haven't shown their best uh, version at Barcelona. And they may have a chance with Ronald Koeman. Uh, Frenkie de Jong was spectacular. Uh, I think that uh, he paired up really well with uh, Busquets. And then in the second half, Barcelona became young again. Uh, when they played against Bayern uh, back in summer, the average age of the squad or, or the of the team that started against Bayern was 29.5 years and today they finished the game with an average age of 26.7 years which is good because Barcelona needed some uh, fresh legs and uh, the likes of Dembélé, Pedri, Trincao all came in the second half and they made the difference too. But in short they looked like Barcelona then did they? I think so, yeah. And uh, the most important thing is that uh, there were many players who wanted the ball in the space. I think that uh, when Suarez, Vidal, Messi were in the in the lineup, I think that they were all looking for the ball to, to be passed to their feet. And uh, the likes of uh, Griezmann, uh, I would say that Ansu Fati, then Trincao in the second half, they all want to run to the space. And this is very, this is very refreshing for Lionel Messi because Lionel Messi can feel young again because uh, maybe Kida cannot produce uh, one of these um, exuberant uh, performances uh, from the physical point of view, even though he was very competitive today. But he can definitely... Uh, find fresh legs around him and that is going to help him inevitably so I think that it was a very good uh, start for Barcelona and now the only thing that I believe they need is uh, I don't know if maybe a good right back apart from Sergi Roberto but he looks like Dest from Ajax is on his way uh, to Barcelona and then I would like to see when the things get rough if Barcelona will have a player like Luis Suarez number nine uh, so far I think that uh, Antoine Griezmann is not that player will never be and Martin Braithwaite is a player that uh, obviously doesn't have the level of Luis Suarez Luis Suarez's level illustrated by his two goals on his debut in what, just about 20 minutes for Atletico Madrid in a whopping 6-1 victory over Granada. Yeah, there was no doubt that uh, 
Barcelona did probably a good thing of loading Luis Suarez, but did the wrong thing of loading Luis Suarez to Atlético de Madrid, if that makes sense, uh, because Atlético de Madrid probably will challenge uh, for La Liga with Barcelona. And uh, the truth is that Luis Suarez was very good. Uh, he had an instant impact on the game. He had a clear chance uh, as soon as he uh, put his feet on the on the ground, and then he scored two goals. And uh, I think that he has killed a little bit of the debate uh, around who should be the number nine at, at Atlético de Madrid. As long as he's fit, Luis Suárez is going to be. And last season, Atlético didn't have that because Diego Costa and Morata, they were far from convincing both of them. And there was always this question, who is going to be the striker? Why is the striker not scoring enough? Well, Luis Suárez is going to be that player for the first time in many years, maybe for the first time since Radamel Falcao, that is going to score easily 20-plus goals for Atlético de Madrid as a number nine. Amazing. All right, well, so many questions about that move. Uh, not least the, the price of it, but we'll be discussing all of that and much more uh, in Tuesday's edition of the Totally Football Show. Alvaro, thank you so much for uh, uh, just dropping by tonight. A lovely little uh, a taster there. And we'll speak to you on Tuesday. Yeah, looking forward to it. Always a pleasure. More choice continental bits like that coming up on Tuesday. Before we close up shop on this edition of Totally Football Show, Matt, Daniel, Rory, anything else you want to throw our way? Daniel, for example, do you want to just flesh out a little bit more what Mind Games is all about with Neville Southall? Yeah, I should say, um, because the publishers will be happy for me to do so, that my book with Neville Southall is now available to buy as of last week. Um, it's called Mind Games. It's basically his account of his journey post-playing while using many of his playing anecdotes uh, on issues of mental health and social justice and... Um, yeah, you know, this incredible journey he's been on, which is to basically he didn't want to be known as Neville Southall ex-football. He wanted to be known as Neville Southall carer and helper of people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he is 100% worth your time and, and money. Splendid stuff. And that's out now? Yes, that's out now. Excellent. Very good. Well, we'll be out now, as it were, listeners, and let you get on with your Monday. Hope you have a splendid week until we catch up with you again from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees. Media.